ultimately no one had done what we did. With the money we had invested, with the time horizon we built it in, with the category we're trying to build, no one had actually done it before. Us learning bits and pieces from others was critical. We want to play in the NBA of entrepreneurship and therefore we need to hold ourselves to the standards of what those professional players would do. You had the hustle, you had a bit of a dreamer. The shine story starts to kick off as a result of that. Yeah, and, and it, was a, it was a rabbit hole of how do we keep optimising our day and week and, and mind and body for optimal success and, and output and focus and concentration and mental acuity and verbal fluency and things. Figure out age-old need states that aren't going anywhere and then give them a familiar but new way to, uh, to solve that need problem. I think value creation comes from time effort and skill. How long you stay at it, how much effort you put into it, to the factor of skill, like how good are you, is probably an exponential return. So like if you want to create something of value, like you have to put those ingredients in the, in the mix. Yeah, and there's always the, you know, the pioneers versus the kind of the settlers. Yeah. And uh, the, the, the building's usually built by the settlers, not the pioneers. Steve, how are you, mate? Good, thanks, mate, good to be here. It's uh, a pleasure to have you. I, I've got a feeling we're going into some interesting chat today. Yeah. If that's okay with you. Yeah, mate. Nothing's off, off limits. If anyone doesn't know Steve, and I think you know, anyone can quickly Google you, and a lot of a lot of people would know your, the brand that you've been part of, Shine. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I mentioned to you when I spoke to you, I am a big drinker of Shine. I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but it's- oh, uh, it's a great thing. It's uh, For me, uh, I found or stumbled across that product Walking through a Seven Eleven, and I, I picked up the little bottle years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah there's, there's little a, shot, yeah. little shot, and uh, I was like, "Oh, this stuff, this stuff goes okay." I know I'm not a coffee drinker, so we'll we'll learn a bit about Shine. I think we will look at that story today, mate. But I do want to get under, into your head, and I wouldn't mind if it's okay to to step back and and go back to where it all started. You know, you've had a, a few different inflection points along your life. Yeah, um, so sure. maybe if you can take us back to your whole entrepreneurial journey. I know you had. The, the business face by yeah. years ago. Yeah, so, yeah. so maybe just like lay the platform so people know who Steve is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, born and bred in Sydney, dad, small business owner. I think that's important piece of information. Just knowing, I think I saw like just what hard work looked like, like entrepreneurial kind of endeavor. You know, just working for himself. But just, I didn't see him much as a kid. Like he would come in. Um, you know when there was a parentage interview or something like that. And I'd kind of go into his office on a Sunday for an hour and sit around the, the boardroom table and have a chat to him. But apart from that, um, I probably craved his approval from afar, mm. trying to get that kind of like tick of success or trying to like get his attention somehow by doing some cool stuff at school or in the sporting field. Uh, had an older brother, probably a good competitive edge developed with him. He was a couple of years older. So um, just always tried to play up, I guess, and, and compete with him. And then Mum, just caring, loving, also a small business owner, but um, probably more family first. Mm. And that just gave me that, like, anything's possible. You can fail and you still have a home to come home to. And, you know, you still get cuddles after a bad race or a good race. And so I think that just combination of things probably set me up for an entrepreneurial journey, so to speak. So just a kid, like, car wash business, you know, d d hire the mates around the neighborhood and pay them two bucks to wash a car and charge the parents 20 bucks and just kind of make sure the job was getting done. In early. Yeah. yeah. And then I, my mom showed me these little flyers that I have um, for these little car wash businesses, newspaper routes, like I had five or six little territories and had the same kids doing the newspapers. And so like, I think everyone was like, oh, you're going to do something entrepreneurial in business, uh, you know, growing up. GHD hair strainers. I was buying them from the eBay on the US and then sell them to like girls in the eastern suburbs and <laughs> just anything I could get my hands on to make a buck. And, you know, then straight from high school went into PwC, mm -hmm. thinking that was business, thinking that was like suit and tie corporate, you know, I learned how to run a big business or something. And ultimately I'm, you know, 18 auditing Westpac's financial accounts. You know, they're charging me out at 300 bucks an hour. I'm getting paid 11, 20, you know, with all the overtime and stuff included. So I'm like, I'm not getting the good end of the stick here. And wanted to do something like a bit more meaningful, a bit more like fun, startup-y. Um, so I started reading like books about Branson and what he's doing. Started reading about Zucks and Zuckerberg had created, he was 25 at the time, he created Facebook. That was now a billion users. Mm. I was like, that's cool. Like, you know, let's have a swing at the fence, so to speak. And that's ultimately where um, Facebook came from was like sell, you know, stuff to friends through social networks and kind of like what Facebook marketplaces is today, but mm. 12 years ago now. Yeah, wow. Um, 
my my partner thinks I invented <laughs> Facebook marketplaces, which to be honest, they, they did sue me and then launched theirs a couple of years later. So it's probably like slightly attached to it, but not I can't anything nothing to claim about. But through that journey of Facebook, you know, end up getting sued and shut down from them, and but loved all the upside of it, like the the hustle and networking and product market fit and developing and figuring shit out as you go and so that it ended in tears but you know like you know an MBA at 18 to 20 kind of lost 100 grand but um kind of gained a lifelong education and love for entrepreneurship yeah okay so so you had the hustle you had a bit of a dreamer yeah and then you had this clearly yeah you must have had the ability to look at business problems in a in an interesting way to come up with that idea and to be sued must have been a threat yeah i think i was pick the long term i've always probably been good at picking long-term trends Mm -hmm. don't think about like what's going to change in a year's time think about what's not going to change in 10 years Mm -hmm. and then kind of like skate towards that puck it's a lot i think for me like a safer bet than what's the new fad this week or next week and jump on these new startup ideas at bitcoin or you know some stockies on on the uh the, the the stock market or something so I think for me, it's like, okay, do people want to get healthier over time? Yes, that's not going to go anywhere. Do people, you know, for shine, are people always going to want a healthy energy or like some sort of energy pick me up? Yes, it's not been changed since Coca-Cola started 120 years ago. So like mm-hmm. long-term trends that, you know, you kind of can't get wrong, so to speak. And yeah. that with Facebook um, and eBay, I saw Facebook, I saw social commerce. You saw those buy-sell swap groups were just blowing up and everyone just in the comments were doing these little auctions. And I thought, okay, a little gateway of payment gateway, auction system, location-based, searching. You know, you can search from your friends, but also wider networks so there's a bit of social proof. Mm. I just thought that was a no-brainer. Like, that was going to happen. I just wasn't good enough to make it happen myself at the time. And, you know, I almost think, like, you probably should play to the, the level or maybe at least a couple levels above your current status of, of skill set. And that was a swing for the fences. Like, that was a moonshot as an 18-year-old kid trying to take on Facebook you know, that's probably like a bit too far to swing maybe. Yeah. Um, but at the time, you don't know yeah. that, right? Yeah. yeah, it was ignorance, it's bliss, and anything's possible and all that stuff. But, you know, I think going my time again or advice I give to young you know, entrepreneurs is like start at something that you've like got a reasonably good chance of success in to get some runs on the board. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's still going to be risky. It's going to be hard. Like, but don't make it impossible. Like don't try and build a rocket company at 18, like do a technology company, do an e-commerce company, do a franchise business, get some runs on the board, figure out what business is about legals and P&Ls and biz balance sheets. And then as you get some confidence and some capability and some skill set and some network, people is probably a key part of this, then you can kind of keep reaching higher and higher on the value chain. And, you know, Warren Buffett's a hundred plus billionaire today, but, you know, he started with one small investment, one small company, mm. and then just kind of stuck at it the longest. Yeah, it's it, it's so true, isn't it? It's that, that idea of taking the, the step forward, but it's it's interesting with, the, you know, a few guests have talked about this over the time of this idea of balancing delusion mm. with reality, right? And, and and sometimes that delusion and naivety can help you really take some risks that you need to take, Yeah, but you need that kind of practicality underneath it, right? Yeah. That says, well, this, this is good. Now, you also arguably, let's call it failed, but you um you you learned a lot in, in that experience. And that's the thing, I think like what it's did a you get reframe of, of a yeah. it's a win or a learn. Like yeah. they're the two outcomes. And I think we worry that the outcomes are gonna be win or failure. And then it's like, well if it's failure to dead end, it's like no, no like that's just the building block to mm-hmm. an even greater win in the future. Yeah. So for me, there were so many lessons out of it, which was the biggest one was like surround myself with people who know what they're doing. And like have the humility to ask the questions and ask for help and ask for um, support. Uh, I think I took the social network, you know, like the Hollywood version of the Facebook story and you had um, Jesse Inzerberg, like the actor, like with his hoodie on and like the CEO, fuck you, I'm the CEO kind of card. Yeah. And, you know, like told VCs to piss off and just, you know, in his room coding by himself. And I took that approach to go, that's what I need to do. So I, like I you know, didn't ask for help. I didn't get a team. I didn't get the people that I needed around the table that could actually kind of help me make this ridiculous dream come true. So for me, the number one thing I did post that was I need to search out people smarter than me. I need to get mentors. I need to start surrounding myself with people who were in business, had started successful businesses, um, people who would always just subconsciously level me up regardless mm. of you know what I was doing. As long as I was in the room, I was going to be improving. Yeah, it's interesting because it's a good segue actually. I, I, I'd love to hear about the next phase so yeah. into Dr. Sam Prince. Yeah. Um, tell us about that because this really sets up for Shine and, and founding Shine. What happened? I was 
quickly realizing I needed yeah mentorship. And I had a few early mentors who were connected and, and I went through a list of like the top 50 young entrepreneurs in, in Australia and young rich lists and fast starters and all those things. And I think I got coffee with 16 of them just to reach out, ask questions, figure out who, you know, what advice they would give to people just starting out. And so many people underestimate like how many people would say yes to that. Like everyone wants to give help. Everyone wants to feel like they're giving back, particularly those who've made it. But the challenge with that was they all gave me slightly different advice. So like I'd have one coffee on the Monday and they'd tell me to run in this direction. I'd start running that until Thursday's coffee. And then they'd tell me this direction and ran that until the following Wednesday. And so I ended up running like 20 miles in 20 different directions and going nowhere. So I decided I needed to really probably pick one mentor, one approach, one philosophy to learn in and kind of go all in mm-hmm. on that. And um, Sam was kind of the top of my list at that time where he was old enough who'd had some runs on the board and young enough to, to remember what it was like to get started. There was a camaraderie there. There was a brotherhood. There was a friendship that developed. So um, we had one mutual friend. It was a DJ. Sam was learning to DJ and asked the DJ to connect me with Sam and they were doing this opening uh, at a restaurant. And I knew Sam didn't drink that much alcohol and I was like, cool, I won't drink. And the two server people always end up chatting at the bar and <laughs> sipping our sparkling waters with limes. And uh, we just had a mad conversation for, for four or five hours around hip hop and entrepreneurship and um, his story, my story. And, and you know, because I wasn't drinking, I was driving, I could drop him home and we had more time together. And that just developed a bit of a friendship and coffees and, you know, book recommendations. And I always remember like one of the questions I'd ask any, you know, potential mentors, like what book, what book would you recommend? What books would you recommend? And he gave me Atlas Shrugged, which was a, a, a fat book, <laughs> uh, small text, you know, thick pages. And um, it was a big read. And I, and I devoured it. I devoured him maybe two, three weeks. And I went back to him with like my notes and feedback and what I liked, what I didn't like, what he thought on it. And he said, you know what, Steve, you're like the first person ever to actually read the book. Like he's like hundreds of people hit me up all the time, daily, you know, he gets requests and probably multiple times a day now from people asking for advice. And not one of them actually did the work. And I was the first person to go back. So that got me more time, more book recommendations. And uh, ultimately I asked him if he could just teach me everything he knew and you know, I'd do anything to learn that. So I became his PA, just doing coffees and getting dry clean and picking him up from Bondi and dropping him to the office. I was just attached to his hip for 16 hours a day and ended up doing that for three years. And it was a PA and then a, more of an executive assistant and then more of a, a 2IC across his group of companies. And we started some together. We worked on charities together. We became best friends. And whilst getting salads and taking meeting notes and sending calendar invites out and dinner reservations, like, you know, I was in the room with billionaires and Nobel Peace Prize winners and these incredible people, including Sam, and learning as much as I could. So it was like, you know, I was getting paid a small amount to be there, but, you know, it was an amazing education uh, and, a, you know, like fully deep dive look into entrepreneurship. And uh, you could ask for a better kind of experience coming out of Face Buy. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, uh, and, and I guess where my brain's going is it, it, I'm curious to see how much of it was PA work and how much of it was really grooming you as an entrepreneur. And, oh, it was fully-fledged PA. Yeah. But like a PA works eight hours a day. I was working 16. So like I had a day of PA work and a day of entrepreneurship work. Yeah. And nice. like, you know, I'd pick Sam up. I'd wake up at 4.24. I'd pick Sam up from his place in Bondi, drive from Manly to Bondi. Pick him up, would go to the rock, meditate, watch the sunrise, talk about values and talk about philosophy and all that stuff. Take him to the office, full day work, and then keep chatting about different ideas and books and go to the gym, all that stuff, like train body and mind. Because we always had this belief like entrepreneurship is a mental game more than a physical game. Mm -hmm. So you can play it until you're 80, 90, 100 years old. So in the same way an athlete training for the NBA might, you know, making sure their diet and routine and uh, physical training's on point, like an entrepreneur should be really trying to make sure their mental training's on yeah. point. So meditation, but also sleep, diet, exercise plays a big part in that. So we just went all in on on optimizing for that. How good. How good. I, I mean, we talked about you before you came here, you did a sauna ice bath. Yeah. Right. I mean, I do the same, but it's, it's, a, there's a lot of people that have that in common, I've noticed in this space. Um, but I, before I kind of go down that rabbit hole, there are some people that won't know much about Sam. Yeah. And I'd love to get you to sort of unpack your representation of Sam. I don't know him personally. Yeah. Obviously, you can read about him, but I'd love to hear a bit more about beyond the friendship, what what did you get to expose through him? You know, for Sam, the appeal was a combination of 
entrepreneurship, learning, business experience, and then probably more like life philosophy uh, and approach to life. Like his his mother's a um, devout Buddhist, and he he kind of practices that quite closely. So it was you know exposure to a lot of Eastern um, philosophies, and I was traditionally obviously Western um, upbringing. So that was really cool. Um, different ways to live in, different types of mentality towards winning and sacrifice and investment in self education and learning and things like that, and holding ourselves and each other to ridiculous standards. What's, that, a, what's a ridiculous standard in your opinion? I think like the amount of times we just kept working on something until it was like as close to perfect as it could be. I think before that good enough was was okay and you know you'd get it to 7 out of 10 and you'd send it off an email like every word is crafted. We used to interview people and I'd sit there and just read body language and it'd just be like what's the language look like? Do they lift their eyebrows when they first meet you? That means they're excited to meet you or if they don't, you know, are they facing forward in a deal table? Are they leaning backwards? Are they um, scratching the table at a certain point when they're talking about their previous experience or their career or their deal table like all these like minutia things like that's the level we try to hold yeah, ourselves yeah, to right. to kind of go did you see that part of the conversation or that inter um interaction yeah interesting and what sort of when we talk about deal table what sort of deals are we talking about here you know it could be raising money it could be getting these you know, members onto advisory boards it could be starting companies employee employment you know strategy jvs you know in zambrero there's a whole world of franchise type agreements and things like that going on so mm -hmm. And Sam started a bunch of different businesses and investments and all that stuff. So it was cool to see the behind the scenes, like every email that got written, how it was written, when it was sent, you know, what was the opening line versus the closing line was in the PS. Like there was just a level of detail that I hadn't witnessed before uh, in terms of the meticulous details of the craft. Yeah. Does that come with a high level of intellect? Does it come with a OCD? Does it, does it come with the importance of like, what, what do you think sits behind all of that? Between the I think the the ambition of the goal of yourself, like if you think about like an NBA player, you know, Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan, like we loved looking at those guys and the the gameplay review they'll do on a on a game of Kobe's left foot, where was it positioned with the guy, you know, how high was his jumper, how what was his angle of his lean back, what was the ball release, how far into the shot was it released? You know, like that's the level of detail that Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant took their game through mm -hmm. for 20 years. It wasn't like a one game. <laughs> that was fun let's go play another every single day three sessions a day they would take that level of detail and sam and i both wanted to hold ourselves to that level of we want to play in the nba of entrepreneurship and therefore we need to hold ourselves to the standards of what those professional players would do for a lot of people that standard that you're describing i don't think that's familiar to them no and it wasn't familiar to me until i saw it and and you know some of it got developed between sam and i together like it was obviously Sixteen hours a day talking back and forth. Yeah, uh, yeah. We a lot of stuff got you know co-created. Let's say, but Sam's you know he's a doctor. He's a very smart guy. He's a philanthropist. You know he's an entrepreneur. So he's got cross-functional kind of experience. And you know I like to read quite widely. So I think you can compound knowledge at the intersections of these type of mm. you know, subdomains. Yeah, where the combination of you know technology and and genetics leads to like you know, the breakthroughs in genome research and things like that. So it's not just be an expert at genetics or be an expert at technology. It's the intersection it's that intersection. is where the innovation really really comes from. So if you get become masters at a number of subjects, you'll probably be like an Elon Musk type character where, you know, the world's open to you to solve any problem you want, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So solving problems and, uh, you know, you, you're clearly ambitious. The, the shine story starts to kick off as a result of that. Yeah, and, and it was a it was a rabbit hole of how do we keep optimizing our day and week and and mind and body for optimal success and and output and focus and concentration and mental acuity and verbal fluency and things. So um Sam, you know, being a doctor, I was exposed to the research side of things and and he had friends who, particularly in Zambrero as well, like Zambrero started bringing out functional foods, like working on the, like the IQ burrito bowl, which had these foods in it that you could add to your burrito bowl that yeah. did help, you know, scientifically proven to help with some sort of cognition improvement. And we're like, interesting, has anyone done that with drinks? Has any like tried to put these ingredients or different ingredients into drinks to help you think, feel, and do better? Or like ultimately the time was more about mental performance. And the answer was no, like very small couple of upstarts globally. And then our entrepreneurial brain kind of, ticked off and um, I was doing like looking at the Reddit side of things and had another guy join me, a guy called Andrew, 
and he kind of came from a bit more science, but like Reddit, what's the street talking about in terms yeah. of these mental brain performance kind of plants and pills and things. And we experimented with everything under the sun um, in that little top drawer of uh, magic, magic dust and powders and stuff. And we end up, you know, doing a, it was a lit review of it with a professor of psychopharmacology to kind of go, what are all the ingredients out there that we could look at putting in shine to help you, you know, think better. And we came up with a list, we gave that to lawyers, they kind of cut off the stuff you can't legally put in there. <laughs> and uh, we ended up with what we, at the time, definitely was the most functional um, nootropic, you know, these ingredients are called nootropics, uh, drink on the market. And we, we took it and we really the first to market in, in Australia. Yeah, it was pretty brave in many respects. Yeah. Creating a market, right? Yeah. And again, like long term, like do people want to feel smarter and think better? And it's like, of course, like that's mm. an age old human desire to kind of Superman complex. Yeah. And energy hadn't gone anywhere for, you know, 120 years. Like people do want to pick me up from a drink. Yes. So like Coca Cola is sugar and caffeine. Energy drinks is more sugar, more caffeine. Yeah. So, like, that's not a new trend. It's just they want it in a healthier way with more up to date science and things. Yeah. It's just that the, the way I see it is many people in hindsight can see that. Yeah. At the time, that's a, it's a, cha- it's a different conversation, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there's always the, you know, the pioneers versus the kind of the settlers. Yeah. And uh, the, the, the building's usually built by the settlers, not the pioneers. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, but you've hung on through, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a different skill set. You've got to be good enough to evolve with the category. Mm. Um, if you're first and you're good enough, you can generally maintain market share, at least majority mm. share. Yeah. But most people either get impatient or aren't good enough to kind of hold on. Yeah. So let's look at that because that's a, that's a really interesting kind of frame of looking at um, starting up you know, a category and, and, and fundamentally a business of any type, but to be fair in, in the, in the space you're playing, creating a new category or uh, at least getting it into a very robust yeah. position as a startup. What does it look like to win that category? And, and, you know, as you described there, be able to take it through to a more mature business. Yeah. I like, um, Jeffrey Moore's, uh, inventors, which he talks about like the early adoption curve, mm where really you have like very early adopters and you have early majority, late majority, and then laggards. Mm. And he breaks through like any idea or any kind of category has to follow this same. trend. And and the personality types are always the same at each stage of the, of the um, timeline where the early adopters, they're always looking for something new. They're keen to be leading edge. They want to tell their friends that they've figured out something or discovered something new that no one else has figured out. So you've always got to find like your early adopters, your treasure hunters, your kind of people who are proud to be there first. But you also need the exact same time need to know they're not going to stick with you. Like their identity is tied to being first on something new. Yeah. So that, that you need to find them. You need to build enough of a, a following, a tri- product market fit momentum with them and just quickly figure out who the early adopters and then into the early majority are. Mm. And, and he calls it crossing the chasm. So about 12% of the total market share, roughly speaking, is where you need to make that leap of faith. And yeah. let's say roughly a million bucks in revenue you kind of can get from the early adopters into the early majority, you need yeah. to find that next, I guess, market or hungry market for your product. And that's where they've got different need states. They've got different you know, demographics. They're different people. You're not going to find them in the same channels with the same marketing that you got the early adopters on. Mm-hmm. So I think being self-aware enough to realize when you need to make that cross in the chasm, mm-hmm. when you've got enough of the groundswell of the early majority, early adopters to make the, the, the jump into the majority. Once it's on early majority, like then you just kind of play to that. Yeah, It's a lot easier. It's a lot uh, more mainstream, like you're talking to a more mainstream appeal. And in Australia, like there's not much room for that many niches. Mm. I think solve big problems that a lot of people are impacted by, and that's a way safer way than trying to create demand on a niche and try and turn that niche mainstream. Mm. People just like to be niche. Like like mainstream like to be mainstream. Like they don't really like to um, cross too many paths. So figure out age-old need states that aren't going anywhere and then give them a familiar but new way to uh, to solve that need problem. Yeah, it's interesting because my observation, and I can only say this as a consumer, was that it was all, I noticed you in convenience environments yeah. initially. Yeah. And I still remember the little shots. I'd go into one and I had like, oh, this was good. Yeah. And I couldn't find it in a, yeah. in a few other servos. Yeah. And um, it showed us how I behave. I just like a little hit and it yeah. keeps me going. And particularly at the time when I when I was playing around with it. But I... I'd imagine that whole experience with the convenience market would have taught you guys very rapidly. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, and, and even before convenience market was, you know, like grocers, health food stores, Harris Farm, Woolworths Metros, IGAs, cafes. Like I spent 
eight months knocking on cafes doors, putting on counters and things like that because like I wanted the early, early adopters to be like very health conscious. Mm. So it was like a, it was a health shot, you know, ginger lemon yeah. flavors in a clear bottle, looked like a little tonic. Yeah, it looked very punchy. Yeah, yeah. You know, punchy kind of flavor, which your mainstream monster 500 mil kind of can trick is never going to get their head around. Mm. But the, you know, mum in Bondi, the kind of student who's looking for that edge, you know, the alternative kid in 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 a West who wants like some sort of, you know, different product to try. Yep. You know, that was where we started and also online was where we started. Who We could target people specifically looking for brain function, nootropics. They understood the word. Yep. They gave us a bit of groundswell and then the stores gave us groundswell, but they were never going to be the same buyer as a, as a Woolies or Coles or 7-Eleven. Yeah. So, so going back to my question before then, in, in hindsight, or the frame of reference before, in hindsight, did you notice that or did you, were you very deliberate around, well, we can't get into these mainstream environments anyway, but we also know that our early adoptive phase, was it was that quite yeah, yeah, conscious? Yeah, and, it, and Sam and I, uh, uh, you know, one of our charities we started was a, a, a one called Sudoto, a C1, Do One, Teach One, which was literally entrepreneurship research. Like, mm-hmm. we loved the space. We, we were familiar with the research. We wrote a paper actually on it mm-hmm. around the definition of entrepreneurship. Um, so we, we were familiar with, like, what we needed to do, like, find our early adopters, find our thousand true fans, and then, okay, start looking for that next, which was... Ultimately, if you look at our journey, it's the, it's the evolution from just pure play, nootropics, brain function to what is now very much a better for you energy drink. Mm. It's the same formula. Yeah. It's the brand, the marketing, the messaging, and the channel where you find it has changed. Yeah. Um, which then became from a little shot on a counter in a health food store to then a shot in different packaging on a PNC counter, which was next to energy, more about energy, to then a glass better for you beverage next to kombucha. Yes. And then into a can, which was more energy, and then into a big black can, which was even more traditional energy. So we've kind of got further and further away from the early adopter. They would never be seen in the same room together. Yes. But it's the same brand. It's the same drink. It's the same formula. It's just the message and the marketing and the channel placements changed. Yeah. Okay. So all this new product development along the way occurs now uh, without going to lots of rabbit holes. What was the biggest learning you had along that journey? I think in a, in any small business, trying to play both hats of optimistic thinking and pessimistic thinking yeah. is very hard. Yeah. You know, I've got to be the number one fan, number one believer, number one visionary, both the retailers, but also internal team, internal stakeholders, shareholders, all those things. So I would like fly the shine flag like like no one else, but at the same time be thinking, okay, what if this goes wrong? What if we don't get the range in? What if some of this gets deleted? What if this product has a manufacturing fault? Whatever it is, like to play both like pure upside and pure downside in the same decision-making process is is hard. Like, yeah. and it's definitely learning for me, which skews definitely towards optimism and not having a kind of black hat or pessimist kind of in there who who could actually probably like pull me in a bit to say, That's hey right. mate, like chill out. <laughs> Don't bet the house every fucking six months. Like, <laughs> what, what's, a, what's a practical example of that playing out for you? I think we had a deal, we did, we had a deal with Coles. Um, they said they're gonna arrange it nationally. And we then scaled up manufacturing for this national launch. This was over Christmas. So like I got told in December, November, no, November, December, checked in like Christmas Eve, everything's on track, all good. He came back 5th of January saying, hey, mate, just a couple changes to the distribution um, numbers, but here's the outcome from the review. And it was like 100 stores compared to 1,000 stores with like two SKUs compared to four. So 10%. Yeah. So like a huge hole. And we'd, um, we were like checking this whole way because – you have to get in stores by the end of January. Like you had to manufacture in November and November, December to get going. And he's like, sorry, mate, like I tried my best to get you national. I was like, no, like there's implications to this and we have manufactured for it. And, you know, and then it's like, well, why didn't you get that in writing? Like with everything perfectly aligned and they've committed for it. There's no way he could wriggle out of it. And that's because I'm optimistically thinking, oh yeah, like he's told me it, he's not going to screw me over. He knows it's a business. Yeah. And we'd gone through a whole process with him and he was nothing but positive and, and complimentary to my face and things like that. So, you know, we ended up doing a deal and we got out of it, obviously, and lived, lived another day. But, you know, that happened a couple of times. <laughs> um, not the same learning, like yeah. obviously got in writing next time, but yes. just the upside would come off. And, you know, we had bottles, um, our very first 500 or 400 mil glass bottles. I came up with a cool idea of like get them painted. So it was like this cool matte black, matte white kind of painted bottles and the label would be like on the actual bottle. And we got them made, we tested it, and then they got shipped in from China. And this is like two weeks 
three weeks before our national launch into Caltex, which is our first national launch in any retailer. It's the first time these products have got to market. And we run them down the line to put the liquid in, in, in Sydney. And like every single bottle just grinds their neck and the feet. Oh, the color came off. Oh, and it's just like, it looks like tiger stripes across the whole bottle now with paint grinded everywhere. And we're like, oh my God, this is two, three weeks before national launch. Like, there's no way I can call the retail and say, mate, I'm sorry. And yeah, it was again, like optimistically it would have gone well. It was cool ideas, innovative. No one had done it before in Australia. Yeah. And then we end up scrambling to convince someone to like, they'll run it down the line, grind off all the paint, and then we'll send it to another manufacturer who would then put a sleeve over it, like a plastic sleeve to cover up the paint with the label. And then they'll put it back in the bottles, back in the um, can and the packages and then send it to Caltex. Because no one had a sleeve tunnel in Australia for a glass bottle. So we're the first to then have a sleeved glass bottle packaging, which actually looked pretty cool in the end. But we had to do that like Band-Aid solution for like 18 months because no one else could do it until we had someone else. It would have been a bit of margin too. We lost all the margin in it. And so again, like like optimistic, perfect, everything's cool, sold well. And they became the top selling better for you drink in Caltex nationally. So it was a cool product. It worked, but the commercials behind it weren't stacking up. So we ended up reinventing it a bit and launching the 330. So it's just these big learns yeah. at each stage, which you could call micro failures, but macro wins. For some of the smaller businesses who aren't in consumer goods listening to this, I'm sure they're going to learn a lot from your, mm. your story, right? But in FMCG land, you know, you see when businesses become mature, their their, their new product development stage gates become really long yeah. and take a yeah. long time, right? And you're, you can see why. <laughs> you're fundamentally the complete opposite, right? Yeah. So when you think about that, you want a lot of market share. Yeah. Um, I remember talking to some yeah. of the bigger guys, you know, looking to partner or distribute or invest or things. And, you know, by the time they'd gone through like their DD on our label and things, I'd had like a new label with a new product in market and they're like, had to start again to be like, all right, we'll send me the new label. And then by the time that happened like three times in a row and they're like, fuck, like you guys are just moving too quickly for us. Like we can't, we'll just restrict you if we got involved too, too soon because of, I think how quickly you can kind of learn and then iterate, learn, iterate, and like how quickly that iteration cycle can be is the competitive advantage of the startup. Yes, yes. And you, re- but you require to bring everyone else on the journey, including your suppliers, including your manufacturers. So, yeah. so that's, have, that's where you get held back, right? Yeah, you got to have the partners for that journey and set expectations that you're mm-hmm. not a Coke, Pepsi, Asahi, you know, for a call that's going to, here's the plan for the next three years and it's not going to change and here's the production schedule and we'll give it to you 18 months out. Yeah. It's, you know, two weeks out, we're swapping flavors, we're swapping labels and packaging and, oh, that didn't work, let's launch a new one or let's you know, take it into sugar free and, you know, like I think we're up to label 17, you know, <laughs> on the, on the original SKU. Well, you did make a comment to me when we first started talking about, not on the podcast, but chatting behind the scenes about the fact that when you were in this zone, you were starting to get some advice and getting perspectives from different consultants mm-hmm. and looking at what Coca-Cola was doing, etc. But you really had to find your own way anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And, and ultimately no one had done what we did. With the money we had invested, with the time horizon we'd built it in, with the category we're trying to build in the SKUs mix and like no one no one had actually done it before. So like us learning bits and pieces from others was critical. Mm-hmm. In Australia, like there was only a few people that had built a beverage brand to take on the majors. You know, there's Remedy Kombucha, which we became good friends with and and kind of, you know, grew up together. They're a couple of years older. The coconut water guys with H2 Cocoa and Raw Sea and um, made beverages, had a good crack at it. But, you know, five people mm-hmm. in Australia to take on Coke and Red Bull and Fruitcore and V Energy and things. Mm-hmm. So you didn't have a huge playbook to follow and the retailers didn't either. So they were learning how to deal with small brands. They were learning how much space is too much space. They were learning as well. So I think bringing everyone on the journey with expectations set to go, hey, this is a big experiment. Like you've got to show some sort of confidence to know what you're doing and have some, you know, strong beliefs with what's going to happen. But be super open-minded and, you know, the, the phrase win or learn is something we'd share with the retailers saying, hey, guys, here's the wins from the last range of your quarter. Here's our learns. We got this wrong. We got this wrong. We got this wrong. What, what are your learns? Like, you, we think you fucked up here and you didn't do this right. You did this well here and, you know, it, it has to be a collaborative partnership. Did they enjoy that? Because that, that might have felt new to them. I would have been. Yeah, I think – I think I've had a few times buyers or retailers say, you know, I've given you more time than I've given to a Coke, like in this branch of you or this period. Like we got whole day strategy sessions with some of those big retailers because they were like, this is awesome. Like, I feel like I'm part of this journey. 
I'm figuring out how business is done. I'm dealing with someone who truly deeply cares about this brand and product and culture and team, you know, versus the co rep that's in that chair and in a different chair the next year. And they deal with just the same person who has no true care what, you know, flavor of Coke gets ranged this year. And they're just chasing their bonus for the short term. So I think a lot of them loved the, they could see it growing together because they, the guys who put it in first, they got us the new range in cans and mm-hmm. they, they were invested to make it work as much as us as well. Yeah. So that talk about, you know, when I asked that question about the, you, know, you led to the Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant kind mm. of level of detail, that plays out in many parts. And that was, that's a great example of where you took it to the next level to, to make it work. Yeah. It's a pretty capital intensive business. You know, when you look at while there's a trend and you could see that trend, it still requires, yeah. you know, relative to other startups where we bang out a product and. Yeah. You got to make bottles to sell bottles. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well. <laughs> You know, you obviously did your homework. Were there moments where you're like, oh, shit, this, is this going to work? I feel like every entrepreneur knows it. Like, you feel like on edge 99% of the time and like good 1% of the time. Mm. Like, you think everything's fucking great 1% of the time. And 99% of the time, you're like looking for either a kill shot to come around the corner or at least a wound in shot. Mm. Like, something that's going to wipe you out for the next week or two, like, you know, consume your time and attention. So, thankfully, you want to, you know, graduate out of kill shots where one thing can just take you completely out and we, we got out of that zone and then it was just going, okay, what's, what are the biggest risks to this thing and try and get away from it? So, you know, capital's definitely one of them. We had good suppliers, again, who, if brought on the journey, would partner with you to go, okay, we'll extend payment terms or we will give you, you know, some line of credits or we'll do X, Y, Z for you. So, they are invested in your growth as much as… yeah. You know, because ultimately from a manufacturer perspective, the more we sell, the more bottles they manufacture for us. So, of course, they want us to succeed. So, if, if they can open up some, you know, credit for us or give us pay- longer payment terms so we can get a deal with Woolworths done, it's a win-win. Yeah. And totally. I think maybe entrepreneurs try and hold that stuff too close to their chest and go like, oh, I don't want to ask for help or bring people on the journey or tell them what we're not doing right or where we need help and they want to feel like they've got everything figured out. I think that's just a mistake that I made definitely for my first, you know, face by days. Yeah. And I didn't want to make that again. Often when we'll have a conversation with, you know, uh, an owner, the, the first thing they'll tell you will be all the great things that are going on, right? And, yeah. And in our case, they're often coming to us for help. Right? Yeah. 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 Um, what, I mean, clearly you've got, you're quite connected. You're involved in entrepreneurial communities. You, 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 you're naturally part of the, when you're part of these sorts of communities and the work you do, yeah. you find people that are pretty similar to you. But, when you look at this space, what do you think entrepreneurs in general do that you notice when it comes to their development that that holds them back? If you if you've seen anything, I would maybe sometimes say not back themselves enough. Mm-hmm. I think we, the entrepreneur, is the change maker, the disruptor, the innovator, the Elon Musk's of the world, the Jobs. They they're the guys who do make dents in the universe, mm. and then sometimes they listen too much to. The accountant or the lawyer or the you know employee in a big company who says it's not possible it can't be done too risky whatever it may be and it's like you know if you actually back yourself more like i think you have more of an upside more positive impact for you and others as well so mm-hmm. um there's a naivety and an ignorance there that we talked about previously which is you need some grounded in reality yeah. you know advice and things like that but i think we're a little bit more sensitive in today's world a bit around culture and and things like that. I think we can go too far to kind of play safe yeah. and think the risk of failure is too high so you don't actually have a crack at it. Yeah. Where I heard this analogy where if you're playing baseball, for example, and the best you could do in baseball if you're better is hit a home run. And I think that's four points. The downside of you striking out is is you, you walk out with no... So you, hence why you don't home run every single time. Like you try and, and you just steal base, base and you try and do all the rest of it. It's You play safe. Where like if the the return of you hitting a home run is a thousand runs or a hundred thousand runs, you'd swing for it every time. Every time. Why yeah. wouldn't you? Yeah. And that's the entrepreneurial game we play. Like if the returns are so big in business that if you actually just get one right, it's so outweighs every sort of say play you could possibly do forever. Yeah. I think once you kind of get that grasp of how big these returns are, how big the the gain is, it's not one for one linear. It's exponential. Yeah, it's uh, it reminds me of something a mentor taught me years ago that the success of your business is, is directly reflected of the amount of risk you can tolerate. Yeah. And, you know, I, that that idea of risk, like you said, the accountant will look coming to your business and look at it and you'll see completely different risks. Yeah. What what was some of the, you know, as you started to mature the business, I'm sure there were some blind spots or risks that you went, okay, yeah, we're, <laughs> I've got to keep an eye on that. Before that was a little fire, now that's a bigger yeah, fire. Definitely. Did you Did you see that 
anything was, um, like you said before, the pessimist mindset might have been helpful at times. Oh, 100%. Yeah, what were some of the examples where you're like, oh, I wish I kept an eye on that? Look, I think, you know, like playing poker, for example, like that, I think you need to make bets. Yeah. Like there's blinds. Like every time you get dealt a hand, you, you're paying something to be there. Like there's a cost to be in the game. Yeah. So you got to make a bet with a hand you're dealt, mm. but you don't want to make every hand, every bet <laughs> all the time. Yeah. yeah. Like every hand is need to be all in. So I think for me, I think there's probably some times where like I have three or four, let's say, hands at play. Like I'd have three or four bets on the table, maybe I'm playing four different games, where maybe it was better just to play one or two. Because then mm. if you lose it, you've still got the, you know, half the chips kind of, so to speak. Yeah. And if you win it, then you get the upside. You need to go like all in on four hands and then try and get four times return straight away. So little stuff like that where, I think just maybe slightly more guardrails on the pessimistic thinking would have been a little bit. I've got some great hairs. Like I'm only 31. Uh, you only got a couple back. Yeah, I'm feeling. I'm feeling old. <laughs> I'm feeling older than 31. Well, talking about feeling old, I'm going to change gears a little bit. But you, you do look after yourself. You, you yeah, you're, I try you're to. Talking yeah. about triathlons, you're playing golf a bit. You, but the sauna piece and and, and ice bath thing, you, you clearly look after yourself. But you have dabbled in and created a podcast where you're <laughs> sitting in a sauna yeah. with your guests. So yeah. first of all, I, I think for others listening to this, the podcast is cool, but can you tell everyone a bit about that podcast if they haven't heard it? Yeah, yeah, it's called Win or Learn. So that kind of key philosophy of how do we unpack the wins for the audience and let them you know, celebrate and learn from their success, but also what are those real fuck up learning moments that, again, hopefully you don't need to make the same mistakes as everyone else did. So I think any idiot can learn from their own experience. I think the true competitive advantage comes from the experience of others. Yes. So that was, you know, the journey of the the podcast was get, you know, awesome people like Michelle Bridges in or, you know, CJ, this incredible um, story or these other, you know, athletes, entrepreneurs, you know, scientists, innovators, these kind of people in and then put them in a situation, one that's linked to our brand, which is like think, feel, do better. And saunas are one of the most well-researched things to help you think, feel, do better. And then you get them in an environment where one, we live in a social media generation where what's going to stop the the thumb scroll is a visually appealing kind of like, what the hell, are they in a sauna having a conversation? Why are they, why are they doing that? Shirts off. Shirts off, <laughs> microphones out. Yeah. So that's just like a thumb stop, social media optimized kind of visual strategy. And then you secondly get high quality content from the conversation because they're a bit under pressure. They're kind of having a conversation, you know, whilst at 80 degrees at 60 minutes. So, you know, you get stuff that you might not get from other podcasts. So it kind of worked on a few factors and we launched that thing and it got, 2.4 million views across all the pon- content in like six weeks and uh, it worked really well. We had Michelle Bridges, thankfully, on the first episode. So it was a lot of like good and bad, you know, press around her. And, you know, we'll, we'll put that podcast on pause at the moment with me stepping away from Shine and me probably looking at doing another podcast and things. So they're doing some other stuff now at Shine uh, and not the podcast. But the stuff we had was was working. It was, uh, it was a bit of fun as well. Bit of fun, yeah. So what when you turn the heat up, yeah, what were, what were some of the uh, – more interesting discussions and more importantly what did you learn from that podcast process uh, in terms of the guests and the, the, the you, know, you seem like someone that absorbs something in any case that you're involved yeah what did you get out of it i think i was framework kind of person so i saw the same like hero's journey if you think about a guy called joseph campbell realized he wrote a seminal book called the the hero's journey mm-hmm. or a thousand um thousand ten thousand faces um, anyway, so it's like every main character in every kind of story follows the same journey pretty much, right? Mm-hmm. Like known world, then they leave it and then there's a mentor and then there's trials and tribulations and there's a kind of fight for the death. There's a key learning and then they bring it back, changed, and they pass on to others. And like Harry Potter to, you know, the Bible follows the same journey. And I think that's a interesting thing I picked up, you know, just from athletes to TV personalities to actors to professional athletes. Like it was a very similar journey. It was like they faced a big roadblock. They messed up in some big way. There was a big challenge there. They learned something that changed their life. They came out better for it. Mm. And then they set them up for an even bigger challenge and more success on the other side of it. So I think that was always a key reflection for me to go, if I'm going through a really shit time and I'm having a really tough time getting uphill, I've just had a big defeat cool like a massive learning is going to come from this like and and you know i've gone through a few challenges personally recently and 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 professionally to a degree and it's like okay like what's the learning here like where's the gem like where's the treasure like i've just been fucked up by a dragon yeah where's the treasure the, the treasure chest here i was about to ask you because it sounds like one of the first dra- the first dragon for you is facebook yeah 100 percent. what have been other versions of that for you look i had a, I had a relationship breakdown i think i realized from that the importance one of of a relationship and what it can give you in in a positive sense and i think i wasn't prioritizing 
relationships. I didn't see it as something that was as valuable as it could have been. And then also like around cap- compatibility of a partner and things like that. And that was like, there's not much worse than what people would assume from, from a divorce, you know, particularly quite young at 30. But on the other side of it, it's like, it's the most f- fulfilling, liberating, you know, I've got an amazing partner. Now we're engaged, we're having a baby, like, and it's like, when you know, you know, and then I'm like, oh my God, this is what a relationship could be when you're, you know, extremely well suited to the person. Like, I'm like super excited and and like super in, in love and all those things. But I only would have got to that point from this like trial of hell, so to speak, with the mm-hmm. with a decision to leave a relationship and and kind of go through a separation, divorce, which is financially and, and emotionally probably the hardest thing people can do. Yeah, absolutely. Did did that Often I ask a question, you know, in this podcast, what have you changed your mind on? Mm. Maybe just in that piece there alone, what what have you cha- what have you changed your mind on? I think value creation comes from time, effort, and skill. And I think it's like how long you stand at it, stay at it, how much effort you put into it, to the factor of skill, like how good are you? Is probably an exponential return. Mm. So like if you want to create something of value, like you have to put those ingredients in this in the mix, like. And for me, in a relationship, I didn't can't talk about this. Like anything, you shouldn't use anything as a means to an end. Like it should everything be, should be an end in itself, mm-hmm. or else you're completely disrespecting the middle part. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think on both sides of our relationship previously, it was very practical. It worked for both of us. It was a means to an end to, to a degree where like I was so optimized, as you probably heard from some of the stories with Sam, towards business, mm-hmm. working 16, 18 hours a day. There was very little time, effort. Or skill invested into the relationship, yeah. so it it didn't have the value creation that anyone would want from it, so to speak, mm-hmm. because I hadn't done those things. Yeah. Where you know now, and I and I'm like, oh wow, it, it a relationship is an end in itself. Mm-hmm. It provides probably the most purpose, particularly if you start a family or have a family. The purpose, meaning, joy, love, life, you know, giving thing in the world is you know that bond with someone else in a family. So like once you understand that, which I get that now, then I'm like, cool, invest time, effort, and skill set into it as well. Like how do you get better? How do you put the effort in? How do you become the best person in that same way, optimizing for entrepreneurship? How do you optimize or get as much um, value into that relationship as possible? Because of the the returns on that is infinite. Yeah. And it's, you know, when I hear your story, you use the word understand, right? Because I suspect you're a smart guy, right? In your knowledge of that equation, that framework, and the way that you even presented that is is really articulate, right? So it tells me that you you can look at that situation in the past, and we all can. We look at things we know, um, but to understand is different. Yeah. What do you think is important? You know, regardless of whether it's a staff member you're working with or yourself, and just the way you look at the world around this necessary understanding that comes with experience. Because you can't, you, you can theorize on what a yeah. great relationship is, but then you have to make it happen. Yeah, yeah, hundred yeah. percent. For me, culture probably plays a huge part into that. Like the difference between feeling bad culture, or like like just lack of culture, versus like a really fulfilling culture, and where people take pay cards, people work longer hours, people give their absolute best to these you know missions that they're on, versus people who are resentful to the employers who want more time off and more days off and more sick leave and you know short tenure and things like that. So. I probably, if from some of my previous experience, witnessed like not great culture, not great management, not great leadership, mm-hmm. learned what not to do as much as what to do, mm-hmm. and then applied hopefully some of those lessons where I know I did because that's the feedback I've gotten and that's what we have at Shine is, you know, an amazing winning culture, you know, c- amazing camaraderie. People look forward to going to work. People, like no one works hybrid because they all want to be in the office. You know, it's this kind of... F- place where people want to do their best work and give it their all. And they probably earning less in salary, but earning way more in other parts of their life and professional development. And, you know, hopefully in the grand scheme of things, they, they get paid more as well. But that's like the third factor maybe. Yeah. It's, it will go about the point about knowledge and understanding. You know, I know a lot of people listen to this podcast that are struggling a little bit with their people. And I think there's there's this thing we talk about culture quite a lot on it, you know, in, in terms of the value of yeah. know, an experience like that. You talk about just the simple equation of people putting more time and driving, yeah. driving more, like that's obvious. And then yeah. the other intangibles are so powerful as well. I mean, even the fact that you can walk into a room and feel the culture and and that's that's appealing and that makes me want to join your business over someone yeah. else's, right? What did you learn about the ingredients of a successful culture and development of that? I think you, it starts with a genuine care for everyone who's on the bus. Uh, as humans, probably as much as professionals, like we're moving to AI, we're moving to robots. I get that, but like 
at the end of the day, we generally need humans to direct those AIs and robots still. Like, we're always going to play a human game yeah. where we've been human evolved and created to deal with other humans. So like to then downplay them to a number, to a, a contract, to a, an output, you know, I, I think you're going to always minimize their returns. You're going to restrict their ability to give more the more you treat them like a human, like a, like a data point or, or, a, or a contract. The thing that I think most people are struggling with at the moment from a culture perspective is what does the ingredients look like in terms of how to actually create that? I think like a shared mission, 100%, like a shared and exciting vision for the future. Like where are we, like why are we doing like what we do? Like why do we exist? Like why do we work so hard? Like what aim are we trying to get to? And is that aim meaningful to me in some shape or form? Like do I want to feel from a status perspective like I'm part of some rocket ship so I can wear my startup tech hoodie and go to Friday night drinks and, you know, say I work at Canva or I work at Alassian or something. Do I care a lot about sustainability? So then like, I'm really excited about the sustainability give back. Do I care, you know, about even the culture of high performance, like even let's say like a Goldman's or, a, mm-hmm. you know, like a, an investment bank or something like that. Like they were with a badge of honor, like how hard they work and how mm-hmm. much money they make and things like that. Like that's a culture and it's breeding and incentivizing certain results. So and I think they've got all personal visions of success within that. And they're trying to use Goldman's or whoever it is, you know, to, to, to optimize for that, their own vision of success, but at least they're aiming somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't know what you're doing and why, where you're going, like, Very hard to do yeah, that, you're yeah. going to stand still pretty quickly. And when you were framing up that optimization, I could see that you were going to human needs. Mm. So you're like, well, status, all right? We can, we can double down on status because if you feel special here, you feel important. Yeah. Of the, of the mix that you had, were you leaning more on the vision, the mission, the purpose, or were you leaning more on the status? Did people feel special to be part of, of Shine? What were, if you look at the balance of those two. Um, I always like to acknowledge, uh, analogize to like a professional sport team. Mm. Whereas like, we're not your fa- like we had a culture deck. So we had a 60 page culture deck, which we shared with everyone before they started the business. Mm-hmm. So they knew like what we're up for and what they were expected to come into. And yeah. some people ran away from it and some people ran towards it. Yeah. And in it said like, we don't believe in work-life balance. We believe in work-life integration. Mm. We don't expect, like average performance will not be tolerated. Like exceptional performance is expected from every player. Uh, we're not a family. Family expects unconditional love. We're more like a professional sports team, like play your position to the best of your ability and you'll be rewarded for it. But I think that camaraderie comes with that. Like mm. me coming from a sports-ish background, mm. you know, the people who went to war got shot at, but loved it and signed up to go again like mm-hmm. it's because the camaraderie and the bonds that you feel like one you're fighting for something meaningful but two you're doing it with the people next to you side by side that you know they have your back as much as you've got theirs yeah and that makes it fun and that makes the shittest tasks in the world fun you could be picking up rubbish on the beach but doing the good people and it becomes a and for the right reason it becomes a, a joyful saturday morning activity yeah. yeah you know you could be packing boxes at the manufacturing plant because the guys called in sick and it comes into an overnight summer party. Like if you're doing it with the right people with some music and a bit of fun, like and we used to sleep in the office just because like it was a fun thing to do and it, we felt like p- proud and we looked look forward to do it, not something that we got asked to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's one of the things that I try to help people see when they consider their culture is to see it as a tribe mm. where we, we we want it to be okay for people to opt in and opt out. Yeah. And you got to stand for something or else yeah. you stand for nothing. Well, that's it. And, and at the moment, particularly larger in town, I think there's a sanitization. Yeah. And, you, and you're optimizing for the lowest common denominator, mm. which is like, what does Greg think? And, and Greg's the most pessimistic, most like demanding person. Like, okay, like let's give everything what Greg thinks and wants versus like Greg's is not on the bus. Like <laughs> let's, let's optimize for someone who, lives and breathes all of our desired and ideal values and then let's aspire up yeah not like optimize down or try and defense safety down yeah so before you built that build a culture you you haven't done that it's apart from seeing the work before yeah yeah that example for example like you know some of my clients might talk about a manifesto or a, mm. whatever you've described it but something to d- describe your culture so yeah. you really know what it's about and and how you're going to show it up like where did you learn that I probably borrowed the culture deck from Netflix. Mm-hmm. They've got a, a famous one that I read and thought was awesome. And I think that's back to what we talked about before, like just picking things from people smarter than you. Mm-hmm. You know, Netflix, amazing team and culture, and not for everyone, controversial, like Ray Dalio, you know, yeah. with his Bridgewater, like with radical candor, like not for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like 20% is going to leave. Like you're going to get fired if you're in the bottom 20%. Like that's just what it is. You could call people out for their bullshit and that's just the culture. And they publicly talk about it. So if you like that, it's the best place in the world for you. And I found it's the same for flavors. It's interesting. I'll use this example where back in the day when this was uh, like Procter & Gamble, 
Unilever, a few of the guys making pasta sauces. Mm. And this is when traditional product development was like, let's try and create the perfect pasta sauce, spaghetti sauce. And they tried to interview as many people as possible, like the largest sample group they could about how meaty they liked it, how chilly, hot they wanted it, how saucy they wanted it, how tomato-y, how traditional, how fruity, a vegetable they wanted. And then they would average out everyone's responses to try and go, this is based on the number of data, this is the most accurate, best mass market appeal to, to pasta sauce. And then they kept competing on bigger and bigger sample sizes to try and get a better and better pasta sauce. And then they figured out this thing, which came from a coffee study, where if you ask someone what coffee order you want, and then if you said a three-quarter flat white, and someone else said a cappuccino, and someone else said a mocha, and someone else said a long black, and then you averaged out those responses, you'd averagely respond to that at a 10, like a six or a seven. You'd be like, it's not bad, it's not great, it's not really not what I wanted though. <laughs> where if you gave them their order, like you wanted an extra hot three-quarter latte, and you got that, you're yes. giving it a nine or 10 out of 10. Yes. And the same thing happened for pasta sauce. Like some people just like it spicy. Some people like it, you know, meaty. Some people like it saucy, blah, blah, blah. So the same for culture. Yeah. Like some people like the grow or die, you know, all in hustle, startup mentality, you know, like no framework, decision making on the fly. Some people fucking hate it. Yeah. It's the worst place for them in the world or yeah. the best place and give them what they want. And then they're going to be nine and tens out of 10, not a bland six and everyone's kind of resentful and pissed off. It's interesting you say that because it reminded me of a slight gear shift here, but a good friend of mine who is an amazing salesperson and is also does a bit of working around training sales. And he talks about the, his favorite ice cream, which is rum raisin. Yeah. No one likes rum raisin except for a select few, right? Yeah. So he's like, I'm a rum raisin guy, right? But he says, when I go to, when I go down to the to the ice cream parlor, like and, and I go to the uh uh to order my rum raisin, like the guy says to me, you want rum raisin and he feeds it back to him. He says, like in my brain, he's repeated what I've actually ordered. Yeah. And from a sales point of view, people try to overcomplicate that and say, oh, well, you've now got a frozen lactose uh, yeah. generated <laughs> sort of, you know, with raisins in it or whatever. So they, they're over describing it. And it's, it's that simplicity of just realizing that people want what they want. Yeah, 100%. Don't try and convince them that they want something else. Like, you know, mimetic desire is a big thing where we want what other people want ultimately. So if you can, you know, from influence perspective, like figure out, what people or who people look up to and then just create those people to to be seen as wanting what you want, what you want them to want and then ultimately everyone will want it. So you know, that's what celebrities do all the time. That's why celebrity endorsed brands work so well, like Calvin Klein. Like mm. no one cares about Calvin Klein until like Beyonce wears it or Justin Bieber wears it or mm. Michael B. Jordan wears it. Like that's what's made Calvin Klein cool is who wears it. Because we look up to the, those type of people, and we look up to humans, not brands. Yeah, totally. Did you did, have you guys done a lot of? I don't, and this also, I don't think I don't know the answer to. Have you done a lot of influencer marketing? Definitely, we started massively on influencer marketing when it was like you could send them fifty bucks in a case of shine, and you know you get someone with two hundred thousand followers post about it, and then two years later they were asking for five grand a post. So it became at a macro like big influencers kind of unfeasible for a startup. Mm. So we went with micro, like the five to 50K followers who generally post for free in product and things. So we still do a lot of that, maybe 50 a month or something. Yeah, wow. But not your big name aspiration influencers names. anymore yeah. because one, I think there was a middle ground of almost anti-influence where like people just got sold out at that level where like what they post, everyone knew they got paid for it. They didn't generally believe in it. Mm. So then that almost like built distrust with consumers. Mm. And then the big, big guys are too expensive. So then the micro influencers have general influence offline as much as online. Like they might be generally connected in their local community or their friendship group and, you know, try and find those people who, you know, like NRL players, like they probably have a, a genuine people look up to in their community kind of following, mm -hmm. but they only have 2,000 followers on Instagram kind of thing. So Yeah, and the product's relevant to them and might, might actually mean something. Yeah, so we're doing a bit more in that targeted offline influencer kind of world, let's say. Yeah, nice. Man, we've done a lot of chat and I, I love this conversation. We could probably go on for years, <laughs> but there is something I do want to shift gears to just put you sort of in yeah. finishing off. So you did talk about learning through Sam, Eastern philosophy. Yeah. And I, I've got the sense just hearing some of the things you say, you've got a really healthy balance of being kind of quite commercial and and I guess uh, having that kind of capitalist, you know, hustle side. And, and then there's this, this other side to you that I suppose you've learned. What, mm. what, what have you learned most from through Eastern philosophy? I'd say that almost like the way of the, the Zen or the, the, the Tao, where it's like we're ultimately playing, let's say, what I like to call a, a, a game. And you play games, you don't do games. And hence, like life is a game, and we play life. And play for me then brings up a few things, which is like one: uh, you play to win. Mm. You don't play chess to lose. You don't play volleyball to lose. 
So there's an element of winning there, but like knowing it's a game the whole time. Yeah. So it's a, it's a combination of like, it's not that serious, but it's serious. And so you play competitively because if let's say we play chess and then I win every time the first move, I'm not going to want to play with you again. Yeah. So there's a social element of playing well. So like if we play with generally similar level or I just think you're actually improving every time and now it's more fun to see you improve, yeah. that's also fun to watch and play. Yeah. So we play well with each other. We play to win. And and then also we play collaboratively, which is whilst we're trying to win, we still play with an element of understanding the rules and not breaking them. Mm-hmm. So we know a, 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 a knight can't move straight. We know a pawn can't just take your king at, at first. Or, you know, we're playing beach volleyball and we just let the ball go out and you call it a point. Like, again, like that's bad sportsmanship. That's bad play. So it's a, it's a beautiful and crazy thing that we can do this as humans, mm-hmm. which is understand the rules, play generally within them and pushing the barriers to a degree and – and still becoming friends, and but also realizing it's play the whole time. Mm. And I think that's for me life. We, we we sign up to a bunch of games, relationship games, business games, friendship games, actual sports games, video games. That's why it's so appealing. Video games because there's a little status bar there of how to get good at it. Like The Sims. Like life is just a big game of sins, right? Like eat well, sleep well, career, have a kid, build a house, make it look pretty. Like and it tells you like if you're doing a good job or not. Like yeah. we just don't have the status bars. Yeah, the rating. Yeah, rating. But yeah. it's the same thing. Like if you look at it like that, you kind of go, oh, cool. Like this is a fun one. How do I play this with an idea of how to optimize it? Interesting. Yeah. And also realizing it's like not serious whatsoever as well. Yeah. And and the idea that there's only so much you can make the rules as well, because some of the rules are pre-existing. Yeah. Yeah. And and like also for me, super like. T- be super conscious of what games you're playing mm. and then decide if you want to play them or not. Mm. And know that game comes with those rules and maybe you just don't want to play that game. Cool, play a different game. But don't play in that game complaining about the rules. Like that's the that's the inherent nature of that game. So, you know, I think business is always going to come with a certain set of rules. I think the accountants are the score scorekeepers, lawyers are the kind of, you know, like lawmakers, the rule makers. Like understand accounts, understand PLs, understand laws, because if you're playing against someone who is playing that at a high level, they're going to win. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's a nice message, you know, towards the end. It, it, everyone will have, I, I think when I see entrepreneurs, they, they have this sort of map of the board in front of them, but they only see part of it, mm. right? And it's hard to see the entire spectrum. And in fact, you're usually only good at one part of the game. Yeah. So as I was playing football, I might be very good at passing, but, but my kicking game needs a bit of work. Yeah. Um, and, and knowing that really, you know, you've got to find your way to to balance that game out so you can. 100%. Mm. And that's the thing, like the power of teams and, and culture and, and people. Like mm. we both play the rugby union and I'm a, like a, a hooker and you're a winger. We both are very good at rugby union, but like in a very different way. Yes. <laughs> you know, like yeah. us then having a one-on-one competition in rugby union makes no sense. Like you want to find your winger, you want to find your, you know, half 5'8 and, and your number eight and you want to build a team to then, you know, take on bigger teams and all the rest of it. So understand your strengths, being self-aware enough all the time to recognize where the learns are, where the wins are, build your tribe, build your team around it for a compelling vision for the future. Talking about the future, final question. What's uh what's the next game? What's the makeup maybe look like for you? Man, I love I love one I've built competency in, in the game of FMCG. Like I've played the game for seven to ten years. Like I know the players, I know the rules, I know, you know, how to win at it, so to speak. So I think I could do what I did at Shine in a third of the time and a third of the money. So I'm I'm curious to kind of like play that game again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a few ideas and projects that I might be working on. I love brands and and other entrepreneurs and business owners and stuff. So I'm, you know, look at some consultancy stuff and working with a few brands who, you know, like in that hero's journey, like the key part of the last bit of it is pass the gift on to others, mm-hmm. like pass the learnings on so then they can be equipped on their journey. So I love that. I get a lot of meaning out of that. Um, so I'm working with some brands at the moment and some investment stuff. And then, you know, I've got a, I've got a, a baby on the way. So I want to, you know, optimize the game of fatherhood and play that well. Oh, mate. It's, there's, it's a really beautiful time for you by the sound of things. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a weird, rare time at, you know, at 30, my life changed and end up with like ultimately no job, like no relationship. Uh, you know, I had, I had a few other things go on. So it's like interesting, like yeah. blank canvas. And now I get to paint every brushstroke meaningfully, deliberately, 
you know, and building the new canvas of like what my future wants to look like with no real attachments to the past. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was I was pretty deliberate on the word beautiful because there's probably another there's other side to that, right? But yeah. It's, um, but that that frame that you just shared there is so so powerful, particularly after you know some of the stuff that you described with the, you know where you've been in the last year or so. So, mate, I I want to say I'm sure the next thirty years will be very interesting. We might have you on again in the full thirty yeah. years, but uh, mate, really impressed with your story. You're certainly a, a fountain of knowledge in terms of all the the way that you're able to articulate your story, but the the inside or the components of that game, right? I think that was what was really useful today to just awesome. break it down into its parts. Hear it from a guy that's lived it that hasn't hasn't turned back. I think the the piece for for a lot of people will be looking at you, mate. You you're clearly a driven human being, right? Mm. And I think that's one part that might be the piece that others can need to pick yeah. up. You talked about playing a video game, swinging for the fences, right? Yeah. That, that that comes partly with your DNA, yeah, but it also comes partly with your belief system. Yeah, hundred percent. Like you would believe you can hit the homer. Mm. So, and I've developed now a skill set and a competency, so I've got more confidence that I can hit that homer, you know, again, so to speak. But for me, I think the biggest lesson I learned probably from this darkest twelve months is like, you know, for me, success is probably redefined, and success now is like doing things you love with people you love. So both play the game that you love, but also understand who's on the table and play them, play the game with the people you love as well. Yeah, a beautiful way to finish, but. Uh... Been a pleasure, Steve. Thanks, I, uh, mate. I'll uh, finish it up there, mate. But thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, bro. Thanks.